This is The Guardian. Today, a serving police officer has been revealed as one of Britain's worst sex offenders. The Metropolitan Police could have stopped him. So why didn't it? A warning before we begin, this episode does contain discussion of sexual violence that some listeners may find distressing. On Monday, PC David Carrick admitted to 85 serious offences against 12 different women. Assault. False imprisonment and dozens of rapes. Yesterday was a dark day for British policing and the Metropolitan Police, as an officer admitted being responsible for a monstrous campaign of abuse. It's a story that is as disgusting as it is enraging. Where was the vetting? Why were the multiple allegations made against Carrick across 18 years not taken more seriously? And how was an officer, whose duty it was to protect, able to pose such a dangerous, nightmare threat to the public? Following Carrick's guilty plea, the commissioner of the Met Police apologised. All I can say is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that we've let you down, and you have my absolute word, we're going to be ruthless about sorting this out. He said, reform is coming. But every time we get a case like this, particularly one as ghastly as this, it is going to shake that confidence. I recognise that. And I'm determined to confront it. But this isn't the story of one bad apple, or of a police force that seems to learn from its litany of mistakes. And across the political spectrum, there is outrage. After the truly appalling murder of Sarah Everard by a serving police officer, Home Office ministers promised change. The then Home Secretary promised to set up processes that would prevent this happening again. And that has badly failed. There are still no legal requirements on vetting. Forces can effectively do what they want. They don't even have to check employment history and character references, and some don't. The serial failures of the Metropolitan Police have broken the public's trust. But is it now shattered beyond repair? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, how the Metropolitan Police failed to stop the serial rapist in its ranks. Emine Sinmaz, you're a senior reporter for The Guardian, and you've been working on the story of David Carrick, one of the most prolific sex offenders in modern British history, and he was a serving police officer. How was he finally caught? The investigation was prompted by the bravery of one woman who told police that Carrick raped her after a date in September 2020. So she came forward a year later in October 2021. And she said that Carrick flashed his warrant card to make her feel safe. And then he bragged about guarding the prime minister and told her his work nickname was Bastard Dave. 
the crucial thing to mention here is that she comes forward in October 2021, having seen the extensive publicity following a Met Police officer's conviction for the rape and murder of Sarah Everard. So that huge national outcry prompts this woman to come forward with her own story and it leads to the arrest of David Carrick. How does he respond and what is he initially charged with? His response is, not again. And he is charged with rape. But I should point out that Carrick has pleaded not guilty to that attack and there will be no prosecution. But it is this woman's report which prompts more women to come forward. What does he mean by not again? In July 2021, so three months earlier, uh, another woman had reported Carrick to Hertfordshire Police. She had claimed that he had raped her, but no further action was taken after she withdrew her complaint. It is so extraordinary that a policeman should be arrested twice in such a short space of time in connection with the same serious offence against two separate women But for that second incident, Carrick is charged in October. What happens next? When that allegation reaches court, Carrick's name is obviously publicised and 12 more women come forward with a slew of allegations. Uh, Shilpa Shah, a lawyer from the Crown Prosecution Service who built the case against Carrick, pointed out that there were striking similarities between what all the victims were saying. And so what do we begin to learn about him from the allegations made by these women? What do we know about how Carrick operates? Shilpa Shah and DCI Ian Moore, who led the Hertfordshire police investigation, said that he used his status as a police officer to put the women at ease. Initially, he would be charming before becoming more and more controlling. I spoke to one woman who was interviewed by Hertfordshire police but in the end she decided that she did not want to proceed with a criminal complaint. She said she couldn't face the idea of giving evidence in court, but she gave a really clear account of what he was like and how he controlled her. And her allegations were of a similar nature to the women who Carrick admitted abusing. So what did she tell you? The woman that I interviewed said that she met Carrick on Tinder and that initially he was charming, She said they went on holidays and romantic walks together and she believed she'd found the one. He apparently told her that he loved her and that she was the only woman for him. But quite soon into their relationship, he began putting her down in front of other people and became more and more controlling. She described this as being subtle at first. She also said that he would do things in a nice way. So, for example... He tried to stop her from seeing her family, but he would say to her, you should let your family live their lives. He would also say that she should give him control of her finances because she wasn't good at looking after her money. Do we know how long their relationship lasted and how ugly it got? Their relationship lasted about 14 months and quite soon into the relationship, he became more and more controlling. For example, he began tracking her without her knowledge using her Find My Friends app on her iPhone. She didn't know this until he would text her saying, why aren't you at home? He would also send her screenshots of her being online on WhatsApp saying, why are you online? Get off your phone. And he didn't like her being on her phone after 10pm. 
She said that Carrick was obsessed with pornography, that he had quite a vast collection and he wanted to emulate some of the sex acts that he saw in these videos, what she described as weird and crazy acts. And she would say no, and that's when he became more and more violent. He would strangle her, or he once kicked her out of bed, injuring her back. She also accuses him of raping her on more than one occasion, she says. She says towards the end of their relationship, she didn't want to have sex with him. She would say no but he would force himself on her. She recalled waking up in the night to find him on top of her. She also recounted a harrowing experience that she had while they were on holiday together. He was obsessed with trying to make her drink his urine. Now, other women have also alleged this, the women that are part of the police case. The woman I spoke to said that he, on one occasion, did force her to do it. And it left her feeling, she said, awful, very small. And she couldn't believe that she let somebody treat her like that. You know, she ended up blaming herself. She said that he would make her feel like there was something wrong with her for not wanting to participate in this. And it wasn't until she got out of it that she realised that she was in this abusive relationship. And what was her experience of reporting this behaviour to the police? I think she found it very, very difficult. She had no complaints about the police as such. It was more that she found going through all of the details very, very difficult. She said she began having panic attacks and nightmares and that is why she didn't want to proceed with a formal complaint. Emina, you were at the hearing on Monday. Can you tell me about what it was like to be in court that day? It was a very short hearing at Southwark Crown Court. The room was full of journalists because there was no jury in the room, so the journalists were able to take up a lot of the benches in the courtroom. Carrick stood up to plead guilty to six charges. He'd already pleaded guilty to 43 charges at the Old Bailey in December, It means that he pleaded guilty to 49 charges in total, but some of these charges are multiple incident counts. So actually, he pleaded guilty to 85 acts of serious offending, including 48 rapes. The details of this case are so shocking. That many offences, that much cruelty and violence inflicted on women, and he's a serving police officer, with serious allegations made against him that stretch back over two decades Whilst serving, he was accused of harassment and assault in 2002 and a domestic incident in 2004, despite several more allegations against him, none of which led to criminal prosecutions. Carrick was successfully re-vetted in 2017. It is beyond belief that he was able to stay working and get promoted in his job. In July 2021, after being arrested on suspicion of rape, he was placed on restricted duties. But two months later, those restrictions were lifted after the charges were dropped. It was only in October 2021 that he was finally suspended from the Met after another accusation of rape by a woman he'd met on a dating app. And it seems clear that from the outset, he's abusing his power as a policeman to do what he does. And there's this whole pattern there. We've heard all these different incidents at which it might have suggested to his superiors that there's something going very badly wrong here. 
How does he go about doing what he does? I think because he uses his power as a police officer to frighten the women into submission. For example, the woman that I spoke to said that he threatened her on a number of occasions. She said that when she tried to leave him, he said, I look after the prime minister, you better behave yourself, I'm a powerful man. On one occasion, he actually threatened to kill her. She claims that he said, I can kill you without leaving any evidence because I work in the police. She says that after an incident about a year into her relationship with Carrick, he threw her outside naked in handcuffs after she refused to have sex with him. She said that she decided she had to leave him at that point, but then Carrick told her that he would plant drugs in her car and report her to the police. How did he get away with it? I think on occasion, some of the women that had reported him to the police withdrew their complaints, whether out of fear or just not wanting to deal with a prosecution. The woman that I spoke to and her reluctance to proceed with a criminal complaint shows just how difficult it is for women and the trauma that comes with potentially having to relive your experiences in court in front of a jury. Emine, in your reporting, you did speak to multiple people who knew Carrick for a really long time. Close family, old friends, neighbours, and, as you've said, that victim. Can you tell us a bit about what they said? I spoke to Carrick's mother, who told me that he was, quote, normalish growing up. But she says that a serious allegation was made against him when he was a teenager. She said that he would have many girlfriends and it got to the point where she didn't bother to learn their names because there were so many different women coming round. It is remarkable to be able to speak to his mother and I wondered, did she sound bitter or angry or emotional? What was her tone? She's very upset by the allegations, understandably, despite not having contact with her son. She said, he's still my son. And she reported a very distressing experience where she left her house and a neighbour shouted at her, that's that rapist's mum. And she said that she was struggling to cope. I also spoke to a school friend who was a very close friend of Carrick's when they were children. They reconnected in later life And at that point, the friend that I spoke to decided that Carrick wasn't the person he'd grown up with and he was really put off by Carrick's behaviour towards women. He described it as demeaning and that he had no respect for them. He said at one point Carrick propositioned his then wife. He said Carrick would walk around naked when he and his wife were in the house. And when he said to him... You know, this isn't appropriate. Carrick didn't seem to think there was a problem there. He also said that he witnessed on multiple occasions Carrick starting fights with people in pubs, in clubs, and despite being the person instigating it, he would then flash his warrant card to intimidate the people that he'd started a fight with. The friend that I spoke to said that he actually raised this with Carrick, saying, how can you do this when you're a police officer? And Carrick would just smile. And what did his neighbours have to say about him? I spoke to many of Carrick's neighbours in Stevenage and they all said that he had multiple girlfriends, lots of different women coming and going from the house. And one particular neighbour I spoke to said that she had 
witnessed Carrick grabbing a woman by the throat. She said that she was able to see this because the door to Carrick's house was open and she saw Carrick standing naked on his stairs while grabbing a woman by the throat. She said the woman was screaming. She seemed in complete distress. She was trying to get away and another neighbour called the police. Hertfordshire police confirmed that they did attend this incident. It was in 2019. But ultimately, neither party wanted to make a complaint. So, again, nothing came of that. And do we now have a full account of his crimes? It's difficult to say. No one has come forward between the years 2009 and 2016. And police have called on any other women to come forward. In fact, in a press briefing before Monday's hearing... Police did say there may be even more people who have fallen victim to Carrick and who haven't yet made themselves known. They said that they have set up a major incident portal, which is a national system used by major crime units, to allow people to report directly online without going through a police control room or general online reporting system. Emine, obviously you've been deep in this story for a number of months now, and I wonder how it's actually felt as a reporter working on it and what the experience has left you reflecting on. This was a very difficult case to report on. The woman that I interviewed was obviously very traumatised by her experience. It was very difficult for her to talk about. And in fact, some of the allegations we weren't able to report in the paper because it was too graphic. There is obviously a lot more to come on this story because we haven't heard from the victims yet and we won't hear from them until Carrick is sentenced next month when we will have a chance to hear the victim impact statements from the women. That will be an opportunity for the women to tell Carrick the pain that he's inflicted on them and he will have to sit in court and listen to them read those statements out. Coming up, is there any realistic chance of reform for London's Metropolitan Police? Vikram Dodd, you're The Guardian's crime correspondent and you have regular dealings with the Met Police. Looking at David Carrick's case, there seem to have been so many opportunities for him to be stopped, at least nine complaints against him. Why wasn't he? There's a few reasons. David Carrick's potential danger to women didn't fall out of a clear blue sky. You have nine incidents, eight of those involve women. Now, what the Met will tell you, based on the Casey review, which was an investigation of how they handle complaints against their officers, is that too often what would happen would be that a complaint was looked at in isolation And as baffling as this seems, they didn't step back and think, well, is there anything else against this particular officer? What also happened was in each of these complaints, the woman didn't want to proceed or talk to police, but then withdrew their cooperation. And that meant that any process wasn't actually, you know, progressed particularly far. The other issue would be culture, which is very simply, they don't take violence against women seriously enough. Well, Vikram, as it stands, the Met have confirmed 1,633 cases of alleged sexual offences or domestic violence involving 1,071 officers. 
that's being reviewed for the last 10 years to make sure appropriate decisions were made. Why is that number so high? I've been told by two very good sources that when you start to add all of it up together, so the figure you mentioned is domestic abuse, sexual abuse. If you add in complaints about racism, suspicions about other wrongdoing, other lack of integrity or other corruption, you are talking about a figure that probably gets you into the thousands. And I think you have a confluence of things. Too many men, the kind of attitudes they have in terms of machismo, that culture of cover-up. And what sort of happened to policing is this has been building up for years, if not decades, and you have a catastrophic event for the reputation of policing and how do they get back from here? Well, Cressida Dick, the last commissioner of the Met Police, maintained that there was no cultural problem of misogyny or racism within the force. Just, as she said, a few bad apples every now and again. Has that line of defence now been abandoned by her successor? What has Mark Rowley, the new commissioner, had to say about the case? He's trying to show that he gets it. He accepts it's pretty widespread or much more widespread than has previously been realised or admitted. He's promising reforms at speed. He's boosting counter-corruption. There's about 120 new people coming into it. But I've got to be honest, their workload seems to be growing even more than that. And essentially, he's signalled determination to the public internally and to the two people who appoint him, and therefore the two people who can sack him, the Home Secretary and the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, that he's prepared to look in the dark places, lift up the stones and see what falls out. But what does the David Carrick case say about the institutional culture at the Met Police? It's different to other cases because there were so many clues. It's different because of the sheer breathtaking scale of offending. But you can't just have a sort of corruption command looking for things. You need colleagues to say, hang on, we've got suspicions about this person. This isn't quite right. You've got various cultures. So people will say there's a culture of misogyny. You've got the culture of closing ranks. It's written like Blackpool through rock in the Met that if you complain, you will suffer. Be you ostracised, your career affected. So it's those cultures all coalescing that have got the Met into this position where I mean, frankly, you know, I'm not entirely sure Mark Rowley has massive confidence in certain parts of his force. Well, so obviously it's not just the fodder of ITV or BBC crime dramas. I mean, in real time, it's going to be really difficult for him to shift that culture and change those attitudes. He's got to do two broad streams. So one is sort of process and mechanics. So more into counter-corruption, trying to get the rules changed to make it easier to get rid of people, trying to get Met officers more willing to report others and confident that they will be welcome when they do that and not punished or ostracised. But the second thing is cultural change. I was speaking to a very senior former Met officer in the wake of the Carrick Affair, and the Met is an oil tanker, this former senior officer was saying, and turning it around is huge. So it's how do you affect big change at speed in a large organisation whilst doing the other stuff you need to do, which is all happening at pace. The other factor Rowley and his leadership have to have in mind is there are other 
really painful, reputation-sapping, if not shattering, episodes to come. Vikram, among those episodes to come is surely the public inquiry set up after the rape and murder of Sarah Everard by police officer Wayne Cousins. Will the Carrot case form part of that inquiry now? And what is likely to emerge from it? So after Sarah Everard's murder, two inquiries were set up. The Met set up one under Louise Casey, part one of which has already reported found huge shortcomings in how the Met looks at his officers, led Mark Rowley to accept there were hundreds of people in the Met who shouldn't be there. The government, so that was the then Home Secretary, Priti Patel, set up an inquiry under Dame Elish Angiolini. Part one looks at Wayne Cousins and his time in the Met. Part two looks at wider issues in policing, culture and It's the Angiolini inquiry, which will look at Carrick, how he came to be in the Met, how did he pass vetting not once but twice, how were the opportunities missed to spot the danger he posed to women. That's where it's going to be looked at in terms of are there lessons for policy, are there lessons maybe even for the law. At the moment, it looks like the officers who made the decisions that Carrick could continue on or even decided that he should be elevated from a neighbourhood officer to carrying a gun and guarding sensitive sites such as Parliament, look at them to see if they should face discipline action. The police watchdog, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, at the moment isn't minded to use its powers to either demand that it's investigated or start a discipline investigation itself. It feels like barely a month goes by without a major police scandal. Is there any realistic chance of reform? Can it be reformed? Well, it's going to have to. Policing is a public good. You know, there isn't a magic box of 33, 34,000 cops you can open up and suddenly put them on the streets of London and take these ones off. So it's going to have to prove itself to the people of London to the politicians, and frankly, it's going to have to prove itself to the rest of policing because the, the Met really used to pride itself on being better than everybody else. And now at the moment, they are dragging down the rest of policing. And if you talk to people, I mean, hundreds of miles away from London, they're feeling that public attitudes towards those local forces, towards officers on the beat, is being damaged because of the, well, frankly, drag effect the Met is having on the rest of the country. Vikram, do you have faith that the government review and the Louise Casey report, second part of, will have a major impact? I think if you look at the history of major official reports and the change that they have led to and whether that change lasted, well, the only rational answer to your question, Asheen, is no. Man. Sorry. I think there's one incident in the Carrick case which is... I would say, especially pernicious in terms of what it tells you about policing and the upper echelons, which is in July 2021. This is, I think, within days of the Met officer having pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard. A woman 
comes in to a police force and says Carrick has attacked her. The Met are told about this. Carrick is arrested. Then they decide not to suspend him for the allegation of rape. They put him on restricted duties. And if you look at all the missed opportunities, I think that's the one at the moment, the debate in Parliament, that really irks MPs. It's those totemic incidents that really just stick in people's throat, that really make them feel really icky about how serious the mess is about this. After the, you know, at a time when they were living through a disaster, making promises, here's the real world test of what they do, and they don't suspend him, they put him on restricted duties. A failure to suspend, for example, a failure to suspend David Carrick when rape allegations were made in July 2021, even though the Met Police knew there had been domestic abuse allegations two years previously, a misconduct process that concluded there was no case to answer despite the repeated alarms being raised. Are there any serious alternatives to the Met as it is currently constructed? Well, if you look at the scale of change that the Met needs and radical reform, the only comparator in British policing history is when the Northern Ireland peace process led to the abolition of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was pretty much hated by Catholics, and the establishment of the police service of Northern Ireland. So you're looking at that scale of change and that scale of reform. You've got public confidence for the Met on what's the key measure, which is only just at 50%, and that's before Carrick and anything else, which has crashed about a good 15 points during the time of Cressida Dick. So that's frankly as close a measure as you get to, is the Met legitimate? Does it have legitimacy? Don't forget the British system is we police by consent, the public consent and have faith in their police service. And at the moment, I think that's barely the case in the majority of London boroughs. Finally, Vikram, you've been specialising in policing and crime as a reporter for well over two decades. You've had plenty of dealings with the Met. You've reported on everything from Stephen Lawrence to Jean-Charles de Menezes. I wonder, looking over that history, how dangerous a moment do you think this is for the Met and policing as a whole in the UK? It's a time of considerable danger for the reputation of the Met and for the reputation of policing and for people's faith and trust in them. I think it's also a dangerous time for the vast majority who are really dedicated public servants. I mean, I've covered the scandals. It's trickier to write about the fantastic acts you hear of. I remember going to something called the Police Bravery Awards. I was sat at a table and there was this guy there, as modest as anything. You'd think he had just turned up for the dinner and a drink. Turned out he was getting an award for tackling a criminal with a gun. It's that sort of real-world heroism, it can be a force of public good. The problem is, it's at the moment, the balance is really lopsided in terms of too many people who aren't up to the job or are just corrupt in terms of their attitudes to colleagues, attitudes to the public, who've been let in, and a leadership that was too weak or, frankly, too dumb to spot the looming, growing danger that would cause... You know, they've been the architects of their own pain. Vikram, thank you so much. Cheers. That was Vikram Dodd and Emine Sinmaz. My thanks to them. 
To understand more about this case and what comes next, do follow their reporting at theguardian.com. Hertfordshire Police are continuing to appeal for victims of David Carrick to come forward, and they can be contacted on 101, quoting Operation Sarod. If you have been the victim of rape or sexual assault, there is help and support out there. Rape Crisis offers a 24-7 hour helpline, and you can find out more at rapecrisis.org.uk. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Eva Krisak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>